Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. We live in a confusing time for boys and men. The otherwise truly welcome rise in the status, rights, and presence of women in every facet of society and leadership, and the constant efforts to advance girls in educational and professional life, has often left boys and their unique needs behind and perhaps unintentionally forgotten and neglected, leading sometimes to open resentment and more often to detachment and isolation among too, far too many of society's sons. Helping to correct this overcorrection of past imbalances and seeking to help boys everywhere succeed alongside rather than in place of successful girls and women is Jennifer Fink, creator of the Building Boys website, a resource for raising successful and healthy sons. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me today, Avi. Pleasure is all mine. I think that what you're doing uh, is very important and not addressed nearly enough. So let me start with uh, what is now becoming a stock question on my podcast. How did you uh, end up uh, working, being interested in this field and becoming such a, a major advocate for the subject? As with most people, it's a very personal story. I ended up being the mother of four boys. And I didn't give a lot of thought to the well-being or experience of boys until, you know, I found myself living with them. And really my first glimpse that there were differences between boys and girls came when my boys were very, very little. And I have this distinct memory. I had two boys at the time and they were probably three and one or four and two, somewhere in that range. And we were in the living room, their dad, me, the boys, and the boys had been sitting there very quietly, totally engrossed in something on TV. I think it was Sesame Street or something along those lines. And randomly, for no reason I could see, they jumped up and started jumping on the couch and running from one couch to the next and jumping back over. And this behavior baffled me. I've watched a lot of TV in my life and I have never felt the urge to suddenly get up and jump on a couch in the middle of being engrossed in a TV program. And I, I must have looked confused and I must have looked to their dad and he just looked at me and said, yep, yep, that's normal. Huh. Okay. So that was my first glimpse. And as my boys matured, as they got older, and as they uh, entered into the school system, I started seeing ways in which uh, their energy wasn't appreciated. I, for my own survival, I started learning more about boys and their development. And that really opened my eyes to things like boys and girls, males and females, develop on different timelines. As adults, we often end up in the same place, but for instance, in males, the parts of the brain that control gross motor movements mature more quickly than they do in most females. The parts of the brain that handle language mature later in males than in females. And if you have been paying attention at all to what's happened in education over the last 30 years, 
Today's kindergartners, today's five-year-olds are being asked to do things that we were asked to do when we were six or seven. And you take that and you combine that with the fact that boys' brains and bodies aren't necessarily developmentally ready for those things. And you begin to see that it's not just your son that might be struggling, that this is a larger problem. Huh. So given that this is a problem and it seems to be a problem in many places around the world, um, could you perhaps give me and uh, our listeners some examples of educational models that have taken this into account, even experimental ones, and that have shown that it is possible to adjust for those differences in development uh, and help the boys along? Well, that's a great and thought-provoking question. Um, one of the easiest things, and yet it seems still incredibly impossible in so many ways in the climate in a lot of places, simply making space for movement. So again, over the last 30 years or so, in a lot of schools and school districts, learning has become increasingly academic, increasingly sit down, read this, write this. And this move has distressed, frankly, a lot of early elementary teachers as well, who know that children, both boys and girls, children learn best when they can touch, see, explore, move. So there have been some places uh, throughout the United States and in other countries, uh, Finland is one, but there's others as well, that have experimented with protecting space for free play and free movement. I know of a case in Texas where a school went from very minimal recess to four recesses a day and learning improved for boys and girls. So that's a little thing that you can do that, frankly, it doesn't cost any money and it can have a huge, tremendous impact. Now, if you want to account for some of these developmental differences in boys and girls, you know, there are examples of different ways of doing this and it all becomes how flexible can an individual classroom or school system be? So one of the things that we did in our family for a number of years, we homeschooled, which was great because when you're homeschooling, you don't have to have a kid writing his name neatly by a particular age. He doesn't need to read this many words by a particular age. The child has the freedom to move ahead in the areas that he's ready to move ahead and to take his time when he needs more time. There are ways that you can recreate that in school settings and there have been uh, more and more schools in the last few years experimenting with something called personalized learning and the idea behind personalized learning is that children can use their interest to learn about lots of things and develop a lot of skills and this is a great way to reach boys in particular because more so than girls Boys will work very hard at something and put their time in to learn something if it is personally relevant to them and they see the direct link to their life. So in personalized learning, for instance, you could have a kid 
like one of mine who is passionate about lawn mowing and lawn mowers. Sounds very weird, but he can practice writing about different kinds of lawn mowers. He can research different kinds of lawn mowers. He can uh, do math problems about running his lawn mowing business. So there are ways to integrate the child's interest into learning that helps them learn and done right gives children um, more flexibility to progress at their own pace rather than saying everybody has to be in step achieving the same milestones by the same age. Well, so that's very instructive. Um, and it very much reminds me of my own nephews and even uh, I'm an enormous fan of uh, Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. Um, he, for me, very much represents at least one type of uh, typical boy who, on the one hand, he absolutely hates school. On the other hand, he probably forgot more than anyone ever cared to know about dinosaurs. So like you said, uh, if someone's, if they're personally invested, uh, they will make the effort. However, um, it is a fact that um, in this day and age, an enormous amount of social pressure is, uh, and, so, and prestige comes with having a college degree. Uh, and a, there is a logic to the madness of forcing everyone to be academic. However, um, as we know, a lot of, especially boys, though not exclusively, uh, just don't do all that well in school, sometimes because of the school, sometimes because of the kid. And say a parent ends up with a boy like that, what would your recommendations be? That is a situation that so many parents find themselves in. And one of the things I hear most often from parents is I have a 14 year old son or 15, 16, 17 or 12. I have a son and he just doesn't care about school. He's not trying, he's not doing his work. What do I do? And that is a tricky question because as you alluded to as adults, we know that there is a connection between what you do in school and how other people perceive you. We know that having certain credentials or degrees opens up more doors than if you don't have those credentials or those degrees. What to do about that? Number one, whatever you do, try to not make this a battle between you and your son. Uh, you probably know this from your own personal experience, but I really don't think any kid ever has tried harder in school and ultimately done well because their parents yelled at them to do better in school or because their parents were badgering them about the importance of school. Ultimately, that has to come from inside the child. So what I usually advise parents and what I am trying very hard to do in my own life as well, I, my kids are in charge of getting their work done. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Some of them could do better than what they are doing. They live with those consequences. Those consequences are their choices. At the same time, I do everything I can to facilitate some of their interests and needs that aren't always met in a school setting. 
So my youngest is now 13. He's the one that's into lawnmowers. He's very mechanically minded. He's very business minded. Those are not things that typically are nurtured in the uh, K through eight curriculum. So I give him lots of time out in the garage and exposure to other people and let him build things and take apart things and tinker with things. Because on some level, I can tell by looking at him that this is crucially important to who he is. And my experience has been the more you as a parent or a teacher can help a boy connect with who they are inside, the more they're going to be able to find their own path. And that path may not be college. That path might be going directly into the workforce. It might be joining the military. It might be going to a trade school. And all of those are good options. So often parents feel this pressure, like you said, there's the prestige and everything of getting your kid into a, a good college. But if it's not your kid's desire to do that, it's probably not going to have a good ending. Do what you can to facilitate your son's path through life. That sounds like uh, great advice. And uh, it definitely seems to be a good way to deal with uh, that social stigma. And speaking of social stigmas, one of the things you mentioned uh, on your site uh, and which I've noticed uh, both with my nephews uh, and in other contexts is that I think understandably at first, because uh, I mean, we used society used to be far more violent and I still remember the age of the crime wave and people were afraid of kids, uh, God forbid, uh, seriously harming or even killing uh, fellow students. Um, leads led to a kind of a, an overreaction, a, a zero tolerance policy for any sort of even theoretical or imaginary expression of violence. Uh, and I have to say that while I understand the impulse, uh, as you mentioned on your site, um, I was an assistant li uh, li librarian at a child's library uh, for a while. And it was generally pretty easy if you had the experience to tell if boys are just roughhousing and having fun or if someone's really trying to hurt someone else. Um, and zero tolerance sounds like a little bit too much of a precautionary principle rather than trusting your own intuition as an adult and as an experienced educator. Um, and I've heard all sorts of uh, crazy stories about schools that also overreact. Is there any kind of healthy pushback nowadays in which they try to say, hey, you're a teacher, you're a principal, you've seen kids, you know the difference between playing and horsing around and someone who really is trying to hurt someone? Or are they still in the emergency mindset of we need to shut down any possibility of any theoretical uh, harm? In all honesty, I think we are still a lot closer to the we need to shut down all possibility of any harm. And there's a lot of reasons for that, as you said. Schools certainly are concerned about liability. That is a tremendous concern on the parts of all administrators. And I'm really intrigued where you commented that as the librarian, you know, it was pretty easy for you to tell the difference between roughhousing 
and having fun. And yes, it's physical, but everybody is, is enjoying this and this is a consensual thing versus somebody trying to harm somebody. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that because in my experience, it's usually easier for guys to recognize that difference than it is for women. Women who have boys, I have seen hone that skill and are able to recognize it, but it's not innate, I don't think, for a, if you're a, a female and you didn't grow up around that and you haven't raised boys, I think it is harder to tell the difference. And I think that's where some of the problem comes in because our schools are still uh, very female dominated. You know, teaching is still a predominantly female profession. I'm curious, do you think that might have something to do with this? It very well might. Uh, and like you said, it's because uh, girls and women, um, when they're alone, the social dynamic is very different. I grew up with three sisters and I've seen how that works out differently. Uh, as a guy, uh, one of the easiest cues I see uh, if I'm looking to see if something's really dangerous or if something's safe and safe is if I see if they're smiling and laughing. Uh, for instance, if I see my nephews roughhousing around the couch and they're really wrestling each other, but they're both smiling, I know it's fine. Uh, even if they occasionally say, ouch, if, they're generally, if they generally look happy, uh, then I know that there's no malicious intent involved. Uh, I've seen cases where people want to fight and then you notice a substantial change in the facial expressions, the intent, uh, the tone of voice. Uh, there are all sorts of cues that you can see where things are really escalating to a really bad place. But I agree that um, um, because uh, because teaching is a primarily uh, female profession at present, that uh, women who are, are, are sent into classes with mostly uh, boys or even some boys uh, should be told, you know, sometimes you really should intervene and sometimes, you know, just let them just let them be. Um, but yeah, it is something you have to be taught if you haven't experienced or grown up around, uh, grown up around brothers or lots of male cousins. Yes. Um, so to move from there to another thing, which I think a lot of people misunderstand and which you also address on your website is the question of video games. Now, people have been complaining about video games ever since they became a household thing. Uh, I was big in video, into video games when I was a kid, and in some ways I still am. I thought I might give my own experience uh, first, and then I'll hand it over to you. Um, on the one hand, it was a very, it was certainly very addictive um, because you get a real rush from playing and winning. On the other hand, it was a real effective way to blow off steam and feel like you're accomplishing something, especially I was not a very athletic kid. Uh, I was fairly good in school, but I had a lot of trouble uh, making friends. And in the work, when you're playing video games, you can make, you can even make friends today uh, and form uh, communities. And what's most important is that it was, it's a clear, um, a clear and um, direct and usually achievable way of feeling like, yes, I accomplished something today. I may have had a lousy day, but I beat that last level. Um, so I'm curious to know uh, how things are today. I mean, I'm much older now, but I'm really genuinely interested to know 
have things gotten worse? Have things gotten better? Have the challenges gotten uh, different or are they more or less the same? That's a tough question. Uh, I would probably say that it's more or less the same, but it has changed. So compared to the early generations of video games, video games today are even more prevalent. You don't even need to have a gaming system anymore. You can use the phone in your pocket. Um, video gaming has become much more social and interactive. And you alluded to that, but I think that some adults are still misunderstanding that part. The stereotype of the nerdy gamer at home alone in the basement is very prevalent in people's minds. But the reality is that most gamers are playing in real time with other human beings. And I don't have the stats in front of me, but that's particularly true for boys. It's something like 80% of the time they're playing, they are playing in real time with other boys. And sometimes those are people they know in real life. Uh, my son, sons often will connect and play online with friends that they know from school or from the community. And sometimes it's with people they don't know. As you said, children can find and create communities through these games. And that can be a very powerful thing, especially for children who maybe don't fit in so well in their school community or haven't felt valued for their talents and interests. One of the things that is also coming up related to that is the rise of e-gaming, competitive video gaming. This has been a thing in, uh, in Korea and in Asia for a while now, and it is slowly working its way over to the West. And I recently wrote an article about um, an e-video game league in high schools. And it was interesting writing this story. I expected that there would be a lot of parents and teachers who thought this was a bad idea. And it wasn't as much that as it was people didn't understand how can video gaming be a sport? But what they learned, the schools and the teams that did this, was video gaming as a sport, as a club, as an activity through school, gave kids who might not otherwise have a connection to school a connection. It put them in relationship with other people who shared their interest. They were under the supervision of a teacher slash coach and they were contributing to the larger school culture. There were far more upsides to this than downsides. Now, I do think it's important to acknowledge that you know video gaming isn't all always wonderful. For some people, it does become problematic. You yourself referred to feeling like it can be a little bit addictive sometimes, and we all know it's just easy to click play again, do over, and spend too many hours on a game. You mentioned the feeling like you've accomplished something. And on the one hand, that's a great thing where we as the adults and parents need to pay attention is if our children are only getting that sense of accomplishment in the virtual world. Then I think that's something to pay attention to. Rule of thumb for me at my house with my kids, I don't keep track of how much time they're playing. I've got better things to do. And as long as I'm seeing that they're still doing other things in their lives and interested in other things as well, I'm okay with that. 
So that's a great breakdown, and uh, thank you for uh, letting me know about how things have changed and yet stayed the same. Um, but so you talked about at the end of your answer about uh, getting kids involved or interested in other things in addition to uh, playing video games. And I'm curious, what are some ways to get them indeed to do so, to get them interested in other things and especially uh, as uh, if we're going to mention Calvin again, to go play outside and have fun there? You know, like so many things with children, it's easier if you start in this way than if you wait until your kid is 16 and all he wants to do is play video games. So it's easier if you have a young kid to make going outside every day part of the routine, to give him unstructured time, you know, in a sandbox, in a park, to kind of find and create his own fun. And that's really what happened with my kids. And it, for mine though, it was a combination of that's what we did and also Video games have changed a lot just in the 20 years that I've had kids. Social media came up in that time. Everything changed in that time. So mine weren't born into it quite as much as children today. The other thing that you can do, though, is you can find links between what your kids are doing in video games and things in the real world. So, for instance, if you have a child who is really into Call of Duty, you can... Go to places like military history museums. My son um, learned a lot about World War II history through playing Call of Duty World War II. So if that's your kid, feed that interest by maybe visiting a veterans museum, by going to a battlefield if that's near you, by checking out some, some books. So try and find what this thing is, a little piece of it, and how can you recreate or um, nurture that interest in real time? I think you'll have the best luck that way. Sounds like great advice. And while we're on the subject of uh, connecting, uh, another thing, and definitely a very important thing that you mentioned on the site, is the reality that uh, boys and men do not talk about their feelings and certainly not if they're suffering from any form of uh, mental ailment. Uh, and it can be quite hard for them to open up about it. Uh, what sort of methods have you found are effective in a way that doesn't feel, doesn't make the, the kid feel like they're being attacked or made more too vulnerable or, and eventually withdraw? Now that my kids are teenagers, the technique that I have found the most effective was one, I think I found it first mentioned in a New York Times article, and it's called the potted plant approach to parenting. And it pretty much is simply being there in the space. So I'll tell you what this looks like. Let's say we have supper. Um, we may all eat at the same time or various people may even filter into the kitchen as they're coming home from their various activities. And after supper, somebody goes out in the living room to play Fortnite on the, the Xbox. Uh, somebody else is sitting in the next room on his phone scrolling through. I could at that point go down to my office and get some extra work done. I could get the kitchen cleaned up. I could do a lot of things. I could go to my room with a book, go visit a friend. But what I will do a lot of the time is I will take my own phone 
and I will sit in one of the rooms where the boys are, and I will just either play a mindless game myself or be scrolling through headlines. And there is something about being in that same space where it gives them the opportunity to talk if they want to talk. It almost never, I'm going to revise that, it never leads with something deep and personal. It usually, the conversation will unfold like, did you hear this latest song? Or did you see this crazy news story? But it gets the conversation going. And sometimes in the course of that, that's when information will come out. Something about, um, I applied to college. I heard from college today. This is going on at school. That's those opportunities. Another technique that others have had a lot of luck with with boys, and I have used as well, is you can't expect that you're going to sit down across from them face to face and have a deep conversation. If your kid likes to shoot hoops in the driveway, go out and shoot hoops. Talk while you're shooting hoops. Go take the dog for a walk. Be doing something physical, and that makes it easier for both parties to talk without that somebody staring into your eyes and feeling like you don't know what to say. It takes some of the pressure off and there has been science that shows for males in particular, movement facilitates thinking. Simple yet effective. I like it. Um, so you this is how you connect with and have conversations about serious issues such as mental ailments. Uh, another issue you mentioned, which is also quite serious, uh, is the complicated nature. I mean, this has always been true as long as humanity has existed, but uh, especially today, the complicated nature of relationships. Uh, and especially uh, when, you know, you're teenagers, you're full of hormones, uh, and you're probably not really thinking with your brain. Um, so, and we also live in a world where it's not entirely clear what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, what can be seen as threatening, what is not threatening. And how, do, how does one help someone who's, let's face it, when, they, when, when we reach puberty, we're not, we haven't reached maturity, we haven't reached adulthood. How does one, help guide a boy through that period as they wish to form relationships with the opposite sex? Isn't that the million dollar question? That's the one that we are all asking ourselves. And part of the reason why we are where we are is because we the adults haven't fully answered this question. We the adults are grappling with what's okay and what's not okay. So no wonder our children are confused. So one of the things that I've tried to do is I try to listen to and accept their confusion. The upside of living through this time where it seems like barely a week goes by without some sex scandal or an allegation of inappropriate sexual contact or sexual harassment there are multiple opportunities to discuss this issue. And as parents and teachers, we don't have to create scenarios to discuss. We don't even need to discuss, you know, necessarily a personal scenario that might make our sons very uncomfortable. We can discuss these stories that are in the news. And 
in having those conversations, that allows you as the adult the opportunity to talk through your understanding of the facts, your values regarding relationships and how you treat other people, and to listen to what your son thinks about that situation. Does your son think that the behavior described was problematic? Why or why not? You have to know where his head is at before you can try and say, this is what you need to do. And this can be so difficult. Um, my boys, so many boys right now are living through this time where they're still getting these cultural messages that say that men are expected to you know, take advantage of sexual opportunities and that you know being a manly man is what it's all about and this is how you gain status. And at the same time, we've got the Me Too movement and all this concern about sexual harassment and we've got teenagers who really don't know what to do or not do. Talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. And when it comes down to it, one of the most concrete things that I've told my guys is that it is a very bad idea to have sex or sexual contact with somebody you don't know when you've been drinking. And even as I say that, I realized again how complex this is because almost every adult who says that can probably think of a time or two when they personally didn't live by that rule. We have to work through this with our children. Well, you know, uh, as, as we all say, uh, every, well, what maybe we all say, maybe we should say is that uh, every, uh, every child tries to live life according to how their parents wish they did. Um, so altogether, this sounds like a very good um, set of rules, ideas, guidelines, and explorations to help uh, boys of all stripes um, work their way and become successful successful men and good men. I am very curious to know um, what how your message has been received uh, given the incredible uh, cultural and ethnic diversity of the United States. Um, how your message has been received in various places among various groups. Uh, was there more resistance in some places and more acceptance in others? Or was there perhaps a kind of universal reaction among moms and dads hearing uh, what you have to advocate? There's disagreement about everything. So the people who follow me and who, for instance, are part of Building Boys Facebook group, it, the, in that group, it is a universal, yes, somebody is talking about these experiences that we have been having with our boys. For the most part, among people who are raising boys, uh, the things that I am saying are very welcome because it seems like common sense explanations for things they have been experiencing and seeing for years. 
When I am in other groups and other circles, that is not at all the reception. I'm part of another group, a, a writing group, where when a different writer brought up uh, that she was writing about the tendency of young boys to uh, be active and how school should handle that, her whole premise was tore apart by people who don't necessarily believe that to be true, that the whole underlying idea is itself set, excuse me, itself sexist and problematic. And it, being around those groups make me realize how much work there is yet to be done. Uh, as far as, you know, cultural and ethnic diversity, I'm still working on more outreach, but one of the things that we have talked about too is everything that I am talking about that makes life challenging as a boy, the way schools react, the way schools overreact, all of those things are true and more so for boys of color. Uh, generally speaking, boys are suspended from and expelled from school more often than girls, and boys of color are suspended and expelled at the highest rates. So it's like these added issues, one on top of another. And we, as a world, really need to start paying attention to these things. I'm not gonna change it by myself, I'm aware of that, but at least I can talk about it and I can share the information I have and hope that in doing so, we take steps forward for all boys. That is definitely a thing to look forward to and to hope to advance. So on that note, uh, and to finish off, perhaps you could uh, tell me and my listeners uh, if they want to help uh, your project or the project of advancement of boys in general uh, in, in America or elsewhere, what can they do? What can they realistically do? Assuming that they're not parents yet or, uh, or if they want to do extra help, what would you suggest they do? That is a fun question. A couple of ideas. First of all, accept boys for who they are. So often boys get side eye and negative glances from people because they're being active or because they're climbing on a tree or they're shimmying up the, um, the slide at the playground. Don't assume the worst when you see a boy. All boys are not violent. All boys are not trouble. Really make a conscious effort to see the child in front of you, to see the spark in front of that child. Make an effort to be friendly, to be welcoming. If this is a child that you have regular interaction with, so maybe somebody in your neighborhood, try and take some time to get to know this kid. What is he like? Talk to him. Treat him as a fellow human being. So that's one. Um, on a larger scale, one thing that interested people can do is you can volunteer with your schools. There is a lot of need and desire for people to work with children. Boys in particular, schools are thrilled if they can get men into read with boys because that's helping the bills, excuse me, that's helping the boys build their reading skill and it's role modeling. Reading is something that guys do. Another great thing that people can do is whatever your interests or your talents, 
if you can find a way to share that with a boy, let's say you're into fishing, maybe through somebody you know at church or somebody in the community, you know, if there is a boy that shares a passion that you have, it's a chance for you to share your knowledge and him to learn from you. So often with boys, their interests, their passions are not something represented in the school setting. So if you can help build that in a boy, that is helpful. And then keep talking about boys and support policies that are helpful for boys' well-being. So if you're hearing conversation in your local district that the school is considering going to more recess, vocally support that vote for candidates who support that. That's how we start making changes individually and collectively. Sounds like great advice. Um, so Jennifer, thank you very, very much for coming on. And uh, I hope uh, people who have listened to this uh, have become more enlightened about boys and uh, take up some of your suggestions. Thank you so much for having me on today, Avi. It is always a pleasure to talk about boys, and I do feel a lot of hope. I think things are starting to change, and I think our boys have a bright future. Here's hoping.